So we're uh, continuing the REACH series, and uh, this series is all about what is the gospel and how do I share it with others. So we, we're looking at a series where we can make the gospel clear for all of us to hear, a clarion, clear call. So if you hear and you have not yet heard or understood the gospel, the, the plan is that through this series that we understand what the gospel is and that we hear it, but also that we equip each other to be able to share the gospel. Ever been in a situation where you just want to share the love of God with someone? You got your colleague at work or maybe a family member, and you're just like, I just don't know what to say. I'm just worried that I'm going to say it wrong. And they ask you a question, you're like, I don't know. I've been in that position many times, and I want to encourage you that actually, as we visit some well worn truths this morning to do with the gospel, to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus does. My hope and goal is that if we don't know these truths, that actually we will come to know them deeper and more intimately, but also that we'd be able to share them with others as we come into contact with friends and family members and just people who need to hear the love of God and the love God has for them. We're encouraged to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel. We're encouraged to be ready in season and out of season to preach the gospel. We're encouraged to be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope we have because of this gospel. We're sent to go into all the world making disciples who obey this gospel. And we're encouraged and exhorted and even commanded to live lives that are worthy of this gospel. So Steve kicked off the series last week looking at who Jesus is. And today I'm going to look at what Jesus does, or what did Jesus do. But before we do that, just in light of the series and what is the gospel, just two quick points on the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's good news. So I'd like to know, in your life right now, is your life filled with good news, or is your life got a bit of bad news? We've heard about a bit of darkness this morning, a God wanting to reach down and pull us out of the darkness and fix our eyes on Him. How much good news have you got to share at the moment? You see, the the good news is that Jesus came to die for us on the cross. The sin that separated us from him that broke down the relationship between us and God has been dealt with on the cross, and we're going to hear a little more about that now in a moment, but that's been dealt with. That's the good news. It's the gospel. It's power unto salvation. But but can I say, I think very often as believers, we, we stop right there. It's just about the cross. It's just about the cross. The gospel is not just about the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Because if it was just that, I'd look back on the gospel and think, wow, that was wonderful when I put my faith in Jesus, when I finally heard the message of salvation and I put my trust in him. And then like, what do I do now? It's it's like, well, is the gospel still power unto salvation? I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be saved every single day, not for salvation, but for making bad decisions, from living my life incorrectly, from doing dumb things. And the gospel is power unto salvation, not just the moment we put our faith in Jesus. That's the vital foundation moment, but it's also, it's about the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel tells us about Jesus, who is our savior king, we heard last week. But our savior king has a kingdom, and he invites us to be a part of that kingdom. I don't know why I'm going strong in the kingdom, <laughs> feeling passion this morning. But it's, it's, it's a kingdom that we get to live in. It's not a once-off decision, but now we, we, we brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of lights, and now we need to live in that kingdom. We need to display that kingdom. We need to reveal that kingdom. We need to extend that kingdom. We need to advance that kingdom. And that's what the power of the gospel is. So no matter how often we revisit these truths, there is power in them to transform our lives. Oh, all right. Okay. So what did Jesus do? 
Okay, a lot. Where do we start? Do we start looking at all the miracles he did, all the wonderful teachings he did? Do we look at the fact that there's more, uh, more written about Jesus, more art produced about Jesus than anyone else in history? Do we look at how he changed the world? As John writes in John 21, verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. This was someone who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, saw him do all these miracles. And he says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wow. So what did Jesus do? Uh, When I was uh, looking at all that I know Jesus to have done in my own personal walk with him, and I was looking at 30 minutes and looking at like, well, how do I, what do I do, Lord? I don't want to, I don't want to sabotage your gospel message this morning and, and, and misrepresent what you've done. But to be honest, there's a lifetime of sermons in just what Jesus has done. So what are we going to do? Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three things. We're going to go basic, look at a broad overview. I used to be a high school English teacher uh, before I was, uh, started working full-time for a church. Notice I didn't say how I started full-time ministry. We're all in full-time ministry. I just happened to be at a church uh, most, most of the week. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, so I want to start with making things simple and clear. Remember, we're wanting to equip each other to share the gospel. So if I get really simple... I'm just trying to make it clear. So I want to start with three things that I think every believer should know. Then I want to move on to two things that are access points that we get to walk in because of the kingdom we're a part of. And these are things that Jesus has done for us. But let's look at these three things. And and the way we can remember them is by these three words, life, death, resurrection. Life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. Jesus died the death we all deserve to die. And Jesus was resurrected in power so we might have eternal life. These three things, if you want to share the gospel with someone and you've got this death, life, death, and resurrection, you can paint the picture of God's redemptive story and what Jesus did in order for us to uh, hear the gospel and live out the gospel and be a part of his kingdom. So let's, let's look at this. And I want, I want to lay a foundation this morning because there's two key areas I, I feel that, that God wants us to walk into to a greater level. And I've called them access points, which we'll get to. But we need to lay a proper foundation before them. So I'm going to give a brief historic overview. I'm going to go quite quickly over some very weighty, weighty things and try and make them as clear as possible. Just this is hard, honestly. Like, like, let's. What did Jesus do in 30 minutes? Okay, so you, you, throw throw me a freaking bone here. Okay, all right. Um, so <laughs> Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. Okay, Jesus lived the perfect life, we could live live. How would you define the perfect life? You might say one thing, you might say another thing, I might say something completely different. There's different metrics and different measurements for us to say, what is the perfect life? But when looking at the perfect life, we've got to look at what God, who is the author of perfection, would require of the perfect life. See, because one day we're all going to stand before him and give an account for our lives. And we want to know that when we're accounting for our lives, well, actually, we don't account for our lives because Jesus will account for us through faith in him because we have a new mediator. He stands on our behalf. But if we don't have that, we need to know that we're basing our lives on what his requirements were, not on what our think it should have been. I had a friend, we rocked up to our final exams, and he was like, you know the guys who's like, he's worked hard. I mean, this, this guy, he worked really hard. And he was like trying to show everyone how much he'd learned, and he was like just saying all the stuff that was going to be in the exam. We were like, dude, that's the wrong exam. He spent all his time learning for the wrong exam. I don't want to get to the end of my life, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm ready. Oh, wrong exam. 
So the gospel, let's make it clear. What does God require? And he has requirements. But, but you might say we're all good people, right? I don't want to touch on this quickly because this is a, this is a common thing people say. Like, how can you say that, that, that Jesus died on the cross for all our sins? Like, yes, there's bad people in the world who do bad things, but we're all essentially good people, right? I remember when the, Passion, when the Passion movie came out, remember Mel Gibson directed it and it was the, the Passion, the Life of Jesus and, and he got crucified and we rented out a whole bunch of theaters to show it and at the end of it, we did like an altar call and this one lady with, I, I don't know why we, I remember it, so, but she, she shouted out at the end of the movie, we were saying that no one's good and she was like, we're all good, we're not like Barabbas, we're all good people. And you see, the thing about saying we're good, how do you, how do you, how do you measure that? Because it's so subjective. It's so subjective, and let's be honest, the goalposts are always changing. Subjective in the goalposts, what do I mean the goalposts are always changing? Well, there's certain things that 50 years ago were illegal that now are allowed today. Some might call it progress, some might call it sin, but it depends where you're sitting, depends what your, what your view is. It's constantly changing, and this morality, this line of morality, like it's a slippery, slidey slope, and it seems like things are getting worse and worse, and then we want to say we're all good people according to what and according to whom? We need a standard. The second problem with saying we're all good is this. I don't know if you've realized this about yourself yet, but maybe some self-reflection. We judge others according to what they do, but we judge ourselves according to our intentions. Ever, ever heard that before? When I heard that for the first time, I didn't come up with that, sorry. Uh, just got to clarify. I heard that. I was like, oh, that's powerful. We judge others according to their actions, but we judge ourselves according to our intentions. So we can do the most horrendous and horrible things to other people, but we justify it in our minds and say, well, you know, my intentions were good. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But if those people were to do the same things to us, whoa, they're not good. They're bad people because they did such and such. See, we're walking, living, breathing hypocrites. We are not good. My final maybe provoker of why we're not good is this invention I'm trying to invent at the moment. It's called, it's called a thought projector. Okay, and I need some volunteers this morning. So I'm going to put this thing on your head. It's going to read your thoughts for the last 24 hours, and it's going to beam them onto the screen. <laughs> and we're all going to see how good you really are. Who's signing up right now? Volunteers. I'll give you $10. There we go. Yeah, some holy people there. Yeah, I love it. So I think the whole idea about talking about good, I'm a good person, I think we're really missing the mark because let me use another analogy. So if I'm driving and I'm speeding and I get pulled over by the police, they're going to say you were going 20 miles over the speed limit, you have such and such a fine, or I might even be arrested. And I'm going to say to them, excuse me, I'm a good person. I'm a really good person. I'm not like the other guy who just sped past. I'm, I'm a good person. He's going to say, that's wonderful. I'm really glad you have a positive view on life and who you are, but you're guilty. You're guilty of breaking the law. No matter how good you think you are, you aren't. This morning, we need to realize that all of us are guilty of breaking God's laws. Whether we're good or not, whether we're bad or not, We've broken God's laws, and as we stand before him, the question is not whether I'm good or not, but whether I'm guilty or not, whether the price for my guilt and my sin has been paid for or not, and this is the message of the gospel, the good news. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. I want to breeze through this next part. 
but here's a brief historic overview. God creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in this garden, this paradise. He gives them a mission, a mandate, and a call. He says, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion. Basically, be fruitful and multiply and extend Eden to the rest of the earth. God's idea was it would start in a garden and it ends in a city. You look in Revelation, it ends in a city, the city of God. Holiness extended, the the rule and reign of Eden extended throughout the planet. Sin enters in and breaks everything apart. They disobey God. And and, and that disobedience, that first sin, that original fall from grace sets off a ripple effect that every child born from Adam not only would increase that sin and sin even more, and as population grew, sin would increase even more, but we would be born with this thing called a sinful nature. Because of that original fall, there's a curse on the earth. Toil, pain, suffering, and death. Worst of all, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they're kicked out of Eden, this paradise where they would walk with God in the cool of the day. They're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. I had a very profound conversation with my daughter, who's turning 11. We were talking about Adam and Eve, and she was like, she said this, she said, I can't believe they did it for a fruit. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I would have done it for something way better than a fruit. (laughs) And she's so right. Every single one of us, how long do you think you would have lasted? The devil is crafty. He knows our weakness. I would imagine that uh, that they were pretty hungry and that fruit looked pretty good. But we all have a price. We can all be bought because we're not good. So God... um, sends him out of Eden, but he still has a plan for redemption and relationship with his people. So he starts with, he takes a man by the name of Abraham, and from Abraham, he, he, he produces a, a nation. From Abraham comes this people who are called his chosen people, his treasured possession. And, and God's plan would be that he would have a treasured possession. Secondly, that through this treasured possession, uh, people would come to see his ways and come to know him. Because of the first sin, people did not know him anymore. So he said, I'm going to create a people who, through whom they're going to know who I am, and they're going to see my goodness in, in their lives, and they're going to say, I want that. And then finally, the ultimate goal was that actually through this people, the Messiah, the promised savior of the earth, the savior king Steve preached about last week, would come into the earth and all mankind would be restored or have the ability to be restored into fellowship and relationship with God. So these people, he calls them apart, he sets them apart and he gives them this, this, uh, this, this long, long list of rules and regulations for them so that they can live harmoniously with God and with one another. Heard of the 10 commandments? Well, that's 10 of them. There were actually about 613 of them. But God is holy And holiness and sin don't coexist, just like light and shadows. Like when you shine light on it, the shadows and the darkness disappears. It's the same thing with holiness, the otherness of God. God who dwells in unapproachable light, any blemish, anything that is not that, that it doesn't exist. So God creates the system of laws for them, laws which he knew they would never be able to fulfill. 613, okay, 613 things I've got to do or maybe not to do or should do, maybe, I don't know, but let's go, let's try. How long will I last? Well, actually, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because here's the deal, if you break one of those laws, you're a lawbreaker. It's like we have this priority in our mind of what's good and what's bad, and it's like, you know, as long as I'm doing those things, didn't kill anyone this week, (laughs) should be good. And we have this hierarchy of what we think is evil. Oh, that would have been so funny, but I'm not going there. (sighs) For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I almost fell. The Lord looks down from heaven, Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3, on the children of man. See, the children of Adam, Adam's seed. 
He looks down on them and he says, oh, they're all corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So he sends his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we could never live. We would not be able to, uh, to fulfill all the commands. Plus, we're born with a disadvantage that we have this thing called a sinful nature. We're dead in sin and we're dead because we sin. And sin brings about death and Jesus comes and lives this perfect life. He models what it means to live the life God called us to live. He fulfills every one of those laws. He does not sin. Matthew 5, 17 says he came to fulfill the law. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was was without sin, yet he did not sin. Jesus came and lived the perfect life we could never live. And just when you think, I could actually do that, let's put the thought project on and beam your thoughts up and let's realize that none of us could do it. Secondly, Jesus died the death we deserve to die. So Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life that fulfilled all the commands of God. Why did he die on the cross then? He had no sin. I have have some sin. You have some sin. Mankind has sin. And that's the sin that he died on the cross for. He wasn't trying to make himself right with God. See, this is, people say that religion, fundamentally the same, but superficially different. It's all the same list of commands. There's this God, there's this deity. You've got to please him. Maybe you call him Jesus. Maybe you call him Muhammad, Buddha, Dalai Lama. It's all the same crystals. It's all the same. But when you look at Jesus, see, Every other religion has man at the bottom and God at the top. And yeah, you might say, well, that's exactly it. We're sin. God's separated from us. And religion has, well, you've got to please God, so you've got to climb up this ladder. You've got to please God. You've got to do good things. You've got to obey his commands. And you've got to climb this ladder. And you make him a second, it's down to the bottom again. And you've got to climb this ladder. You've got to climb this ladder. You've got to make some sacrifices. Finances are difficult. Sacrifice to the money, God. Put one of those little frogs in the corner of your room with the, was it a cat? Was it the frog with the coin in his mouth and the, the cat? I don't know. I, it's like climbing up the ladder, climbing up the ladder. Sorry, if that was offensive to you. I, I, I'm just trying to show you what's happening in my mind right now. Um, but it's climbing the ladder, and then you make a second, you're down to the bottom. See, religion is like that. In order to achieve nirvana, spiritual enlightenment, you've got to do a whole bunch of certain things. Starve yourself. Uh, uh, don't uh, satisfy the flesh. All these things. And you think, well, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Look at all these laws. But here's the difference where Jesus is fundamentally different from every other, every other expression of religion. God looks down and sees us at the bottom of the ladder, sees us trying to climb up, knows that we could never do it because he is so holy, he is so perfect, he is so righteous. So what he does is he says, you're stuck. So I'm going to come down the ladder in the form of my son. I'm going to climb down into the muck and dirt that you are in. And I'm going to down the cross for your sins. So you don't have to, I'm I'm going to live the perfect life. I'm going to climb that ladder for you. Because you can't climb it on your own. I'm going to climb it for you. I'm going to live the perfect, sinless life, fulfilling all God's commands so that you can come with me. And and, and he takes us and he carries us up this ladder and he presents us. That's how it's different. Now it's no longer about me trying to fulfill all these laws. It's no longer about me trying to please God. I get to please God because I'm in a place of seated in the heavenly realms with him. I'm not trying to please God because I'm so far from him in sin and lost. No, because of the cross, my sin has been dealt with. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but I'm just, God wants you to know that you're forgiven through faith in Christ. You're at the top of the ladder. You can't fall down the ladder. Yes, maybe you mess up, maybe you sin, but it doesn't mean you lose your salvation and you're bottom of this ladder now. 
having to make sacrifices to God. Oh man, I sinned badly this week. Let me put a bit more in the tithes and offering bucket. Try to buy my redemption. It doesn't work like that. Don't insult God's grace. He died on the cross for you, paid in full. Oh man. Thank you, Lord. Other than the laws, God gives a sacrificial system. It's called substitutionary atonement. Um, quite a big word. Just know this, that God, and because God knew that they wouldn't be able to fulfill his laws, he, he, he had a way out for them where in order for them to still have a relationship with him and approach him, they could substitute an animal to pay the price for their sin. And once a year, it was the Day of Atonement, they would, the community would sacrifice this animal and it would cleanse the community of sin for that year, for that next year. But if someone wanted to come approach God, maybe worship him, give, declare a vow, they would have to sacrifice an animal as well because the day of atonement comes, boom, oh, wonderful, for how long am I free from sin? Maybe he's driving his buggy home and the guy cuts him off, he gives him the thumbs up, and he's like, oh, I've sinned. Now I want to go give a vow to God, I want to go worship God. And he takes a little Lambert, little Lambert, looks at Lambert, and he's like, sorry, Lambert, I messed up, I sinned, but... Thanks for paying the price for me. You look in the eyes of this little innocent animal. You know, that thing's going to die because you messed up and you broke God's commandments. There were two reasons for the two objectives. One, to show the ugliness of sin and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. It's the ugliness of sin and that actually sin had to be dealt with. But secondly, it pointed to a need of a savior. Year after year, they would have this day of atonement and they would be declared righteous for however long but year after year, they would have to continually sacrifice. But if a perfect sacrifice was found, then once and for all, the sacrifice for sins could be done. And that's why Jesus died the death that we deserved. He died the death that we deserved. That animal sacrifice could never make them right with God. It was a band-aid solution while their hearts were bleeding out. It was a temporary solution. So Jesus lived the perfect life, fulfilling all God's commands and laws, and then dies on a cross for our sins. How's this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right now, if you put your faith in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. But you don't know what week I've had. I don't need to know what week you've had. I need to know what this word says. Because it's just painted a picture about your glorious identity and inheritance in Christ Jesus. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. Life, death, resurrection. Jesus was resurrected in power so we might have eternal life. And I want to breeze through this quickly. Very often we, we make it all about the cross, like I said earlier, but it's actually the resurrection that enables us to walk in this kingdom. If Jesus just died on the cross and wasn't resurrected, I mean, I'd be grateful. Well, thanks, Jesus. But nothing would change me. Why? Because there would still be death. See, sin brought about death. And so long as death is still in the picture, I'm still bound but Romans 4.25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification means just as if I've never sinned. Or, or even better, I read this this week. This was profound. Just as if I'd lived a holy life. Delivered up onto the cross for my sins, but raised so that I could be declared just as if I'd lived a holy life. Isn't that beautiful? Without the resurrection, we have no just as if I'd lived a holy life. Without a resurrection, we're still dead in our sins and transgressions. Let me read some more. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13 to 14 says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. For since death came through one man, Adam, 
The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And this is our hope, friends. That because Jesus was raised to life, we are raised to life. Because Jesus was raised to life, we are justified. It's just as if I've lived a holy life. When God looks at you right now, regardless of what muck and sin and things you might be in, whatever darkness, if you put your faith in him, he says, just as if you'd lived a holy life. Because Jesus paid it all. Maybe you're familiar with this, but the Greek, uh, it is finished that Jesus said on the cross is the, the Greek word testalestai. Say it quickly, you'll get yourself in trouble. Uh, Tessalista. Uh, and it, it means this, paid in full. Paid in full. It was used on an invoice or a business uh, transaction to say paid in full. And Jesus says it's paid in full. Sin, paid in full. The wrath of God, paid in full. Now I don't no, no need to earn that, but I need to put my faith in him. I had two more points, and, and this is now access points. Now, I'm going to try to get through one of them. Um, but... Because of these three things, life, death, and resurrection, we get to walk in this kingdom now. Through faith in Christ, we are part of the kingdom of life, and we get to walk into it. But not all of us are going to access these promises, and I've picked out two out of the multitudes of promises. And that might sound pretty sad, and it is pretty sad. And I think there's one reason, one primary reason why not all of us will walk in these promises. And to do that, I'm going to share a quick illustration. Uh, Fifteen years ago, we got married, and we went on honeymoon to this lovely little place out in the hills, and it was, it was wonderful. And after a week of being on honeymoon, we packed everything in the car, and just as we were walking out, we saw this, this book on the coffee table. We hadn't seen it the whole time we were there. I guess we were caught up with some other stuff. But we, were, we, look, and we look at this coffee book. <laughs> we didn't miss out. It's okay. But we look at this coffee book. And we opened up, and all inside this coffee book are all these amazing things we could have been doing at this place that were free, part of, the, part of the, what we paid for. But we missed out because we didn't know. And I wonder how many of us believers miss out on walking in these aspects of God because we just don't know. The first one is this. Jesus gives us access. So what did Jesus do? He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death that we deserved, and he was raised to life so that we could have eternal life. And because of that, what did Jesus do? He gives us access to a supernatural life. And I wonder if the band could come up. I'm going to breeze through this. The other, one, the other point was he gives us access to supernatural perfect peace. But I want to touch on the supernatural life right now. In John chapter 2, if you want to read um, behind me, I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going, to, I'm going to paraphrase it. But Jesus gives us access to a supernatural life. The first miracle Jesus did was turning water into wine at a wedding. So Jesus is invited to this wedding. You can check it out in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Actually, let me read it quickly so you can say I'm not making this up. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. You guys can just play gently behind me when you're ready. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Firstly, Jesus is at a wedding. I don't know if you think Jesus floated on this cloud, like just trying to stay clean. I mean, like this white robe and just like, nice curly beard, just not trying to touch anything dirty and just like trying to breathe through life, trying to be holy and fulfill these 613 laws. No, Jesus is at a wedding. He's having fun. Uh, we, we, had, we had our first American wedding recently and honestly, I wish we could get married again just to experience an American wedding. It was the party of all parties. We were like the last ones to leave. It was just, it was fantastic. Steve and Vivi, thank you so much for inviting us. Um, so the, the, Jesus is at this wedding. He's at this party. He's having fun and the wine runs out. So he says to his disciples, ah, lame party, let's get over. I think on the, the corner of the other street, they've got another wedding. I think the wine's flowing freely over there. Let's head out. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water. They were empty. Notice that. They were empty. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Skipping uh, down, it says, the master of the banquet said, everyone brings out the choice one first and then the chief one after the guests have had a little bit too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Some interesting things quickly. Jesus is at a party. He's representing what it means to live the fullest expression of life in the midst of a wedding. There's six water jars and they're empty. Six is the number of man. It represents weakness. It represents sin. And here we have Jesus calling out six. When you see a number in the Bible, it means something. And these are water, earthen water jars, and they're empty. These jars were used for ceremonial cleansing. You know the 613 laws? In order, before you ate, you had to wash. You had to ceremonially cleanse yourself before you did anything. And now these are empty. Why are they empty? Does it mean they weren't even used at at the wedding? What kind of wedding is it that Jesus is at that they're not even ceremonially washing? But they're empty, and it's such a beautiful picture because it represents the law and how the law is empty and cannot satisfy God's wrath, how the law cannot lead us to salvation. And Jesus says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to provide a miracle with that to show you a bigger picture. So he takes these six, puts water in. Water represents the natural of our lives. He fills it with water and he performs this miracle. So now there's six full jars of wine, the best wine. But isn't six still the number of of man, the number of imperfection, the number that represents sin and the enemy? Yes, but what we don't see right now is there's actually a seventh jar, a seventh earthen vessel who's filled with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, in, made from, uh, steps in, lays aside his majesty and comes in the form of the servant, comes in the form of us humans, yet was without sin. And he says, here I am. I'm here to show you how to live a supernatural life. Seven jars filled with wine, the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Also, wine in the New Testament represents the gospel. Jesus says, here it is. I've come to, put, to present you this new gospel. That'll satisfy water, empty, ceremonially, unclean, all of that stuff he transforms in the instant. I tell you, there's some application points for us now. And while the band plays behind me, I'll give three application points and, and encourage you with what I think this looks like. How do we apply this entry into the supernatural life? Yes, Jesus lived the perfect life for me. Yes, he died on the cross for my sins. Yes, he was raised to life so that I could be justified. But how do I walk in the supernatural? Ever asked that question? Ever wanted to see more of the miraculous in your life? Well, there's there's three points here that we see. First of all, Jesus was invited to the wedding. There will be no supernatural life for anyone in this building unless you invite Jesus into your life. He was an invited guest at the wedding. Is Jesus an invited guest in your life? And yes, we know he's not a guest in life. He needs to be Lord and Master. But have you invited Jesus in? That's step number one, to walk in the supernatural. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life to the fullest expression. To step into that, you need to step into faith with Jesus. Secondly, Jesus was at the wedding, but it was only when he was included that the miracle happened. Maybe you've put your faith in Christ, but Jesus isn't really included in every aspect of your life. How included is Jesus in your walk with him? And now that sounds strange. Like, of course, he should be involved. He should be included. But are you including him in every opportunity? And verse five is key. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love how the King James says, it's whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Are you looking for the miraculous? I want to tell you a funny story now. 
kind of feels holy because like the pads are playing and it's like it feels like maybe I shouldn't go yet, but I'm going there. I'm going there. I'm going there. I'm going there. I'm going vacation after this. I'll be away for a week. So Steve, into your hands I commit this message. Are you looking for opportunities to pray? Are you looking at opportunities for the supernatural? Because Jesus is there, he's willing, he's ready. He is the one who takes the nothingness of our lives and makes it something supernatural. I tell you, I pray for parkings. I thank the Lord as I'm pulling into a busy intersection or a busy place. I thank you, Lord, for my parking that's coming up right now. I don't know if you do it. You might think it's crazy. Ask Eloise. Most of the time we get a a parking unless we're fighting. (laughs) Are you looking for the supernatural? Is your life a celebration? I tell you, I've chatted to some believers and, and they're never walking in victory. They're always down there. There's always something. And I know I'm a positive guy and I know sometimes we, we have different personality types, but you know what, here's the truth. If you're always down, if you're always broken, if you are always in a negative, dark place, perhaps you've put your faith in Jesus. Perhaps you love him with all your heart, your soul, your strength and your mind, but perhaps you haven't stepped into the supernatural life that he wants you to live. We had um, a plumbing issue recently and the plumber came and it wasn't expected and as he ended there was another part of the job that he didn't do and I was like what about this part of the job there was a blockage between one of the drains it just wasn't draining he's like no that's another job it's a bigger job and the job he had just done was pretty big and I was like whoa what do you mean it's a bigger job he's like this is a bigger job so I kind of paid him and I said thanks so much for coming I'm just glad the one part was working I tell you I grabbed a hold of that, that You might think I'm crazy, but I put my hand over that blockage and I said, thank you, Jesus, that you are powerful to unblock the hardest of drains. Thank you that there's resurrection power in me. And right now, I thank you, Jesus, that you are gonna unplug, unplug, unclog this drain. Nothing happened. The next morning I woke up, I ran the water, it was gone. I'm thinking if ministry doesn't work out, I can become a plumber. I can even see it on my van, the praying plumber. We pray the crap out of any situation. Are you looking for opportunities for the supernatural to break out? I tell you, when my kids are sleeping, I put my hands on their heads and I pray for their future. I pray that they'll be more passionate than I am for the gospel. I pray that they would be closer to Jesus than I've ever lived. I pray that they would never stray like I strayed. I just pray that they would be so set apart for the kingdom, for his kingdom. I pray trusting God to do something supernatural in my life, in my marriage, in my finances, in my work, in everything I do. Why? Because I know that in myself, it's just natural, it's dead. But when Jesus breathes his life, he comes and he makes, and he turns it into supernatural. And we have that opportunity to step into that today. But the starting point is faith in Christ. So while all eyes are closed, I'm gonna ask for some responses this morning. If you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, today you're saying, actually, I need to put my faith in Jesus. And you haven't done it before and you say, today I want to make Jesus my Lord and my Savior. And even if that's you online, I want to pray with you now. Just by a show of hands while all eyes are closed, just raise your hand and say that if you want to put your faith in Christ. You're not responding to me. It's just by putting your hand in the air, you're saying, God, this is me. I'm putting my faith in you today. Is there anyone? 